Welcome to Parallax by Anchor Calra, a podcast produced by Radcliffe Cardiology to bring you a new angle of all things cardiology and the best from the US Cardiology Review. Published every second Monday, Anchor Calra, MD, interventional cardiologist at the Cleveland Clinic in Ohio, USA, speaks with legendary cardiologists, reviews late-breaking trials, and interviews authors of our latest and best US cardiology review articles. We call them hashtag audio articles. Parallax is the effect whereby the position or direction of an object appears to differ when viewed from different positions. So this podcast is your fix of reliable updates on all things cardiology by someone from a non-traditional background who is always looking at the industry from a new angle. Now, here's your host, Anka Kalra, MD. Uh, hello, everyone. Um, this is another episode of Parallax. Um, um... We are uh, in unprecedented times and uh, this is um, the midst of a pandemic and we've done our best to get um, our listeners uh, educated on COVID-19 pandemic and the severe acute respiratory syndrome, uh, coronavirus 2 uh, infection. Um, with that introduction, uh, and I think the listeners will appreciate why I started with that introduction, uh, I have with me um, on the show today, Dr. Jagmeet Singh, Dr. Jag Singh. Um, Dr. Singh is professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School. Um, he's the former chair of uh, clinical cardiology and a cardiac electrophysiologist um, at the Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts. Um, he has had a phenomenal career uh, as a cardiac electrophysiologist and um, has published several seminal works, um, is someone I personally look up to. Um, to emulate a career in academic medicine. Um, so without much further ado, uh, Dr. Singh, welcome on the show and thank you for your time. Uh, thank you, Ankur. Uh, delighted to be here and uh, looking forward to the conversation. Um, so Dr. Singh, um, you know, I, I always uh, start the show by uh, asking um, my guests about uh, their journey as to um, their journey to where they are now. You know, how, how did the journey uh, begin and what were the motivating factors and and career paths and choices and decisions uh, that you had to make for you to be able to get to where you are so how how did this all begin for you um that is a very interesting question has many parts to it um and hopefully i can finish that in the next 45 minutes no i'm just kidding uh so you know i i you know to give a little bit of background i was born and raised in india um i was actually born in delhi um my dad uh was in the army and so i grew up as an army brat and changed almost uh, eight schools um i landed up in um uh doing my medical school in, in pune from a uh, hospital from a, a medical college called BJ Medical College. Um, subsequent to doing that, I, I trained in internal medicine uh, there itself for the first three years and then went to do uh, some cardiology uh, training at KM Hospital in Mumbai, um, where I got the uh, PN Berry Scholarship to go to Oxford. Um, where then I did my doctorate, uh, my DPhil, uh, in cardiovascular electrophysiology related projects. So it was more on, um, repolarization dynamics, um, and, um, it involved translational research work, 
both at the basic science level, uh, but largely at the clinical level. So after um, finishing my doctorate, I actually uh, got myself into a fellowship, a research fellowship at the Framingham Heart Study uh, in cardiovascular epidemiology. Um, and once um, I was in the midst of that, I got my foot in the door at Mass General um, to do uh, my residency, uh, subsequently my cardiology fellowship and my cardiac electrophysiology fellowship all there itself. Um, and then I came on as staff uh, in 2003. Um, and subsequent to that, I you know, started my own program uh, called the Cardi Cardiac Resynchronization Therapy and Advanced Cardiac Therapeutics Program, something we call as the REACT program, and um, which I led for, I think, a period of 10 to 12 years. Um, subsequent to that, I came on as the clinical director of the cardiology division, uh, I think in 2015, did that for almost five years, um, and, uh, and here I am. Um, so uh, in the process of now, uh, I would say leading a clinically active life uh, and clinical research um, and, and really looking after patients. Wow, quite quite the quite the journey and quite the career. Um, you know, those are very well respected institutions in India. Uh, I'm not sure a lot of the listenership would um, would know about them, but but I certainly know about them. Um, you know, from my roots in India, and you know, I still have family in India and a lot of friends in in Mumbai and Pune. Um, BJ Medical School and and then KEM are you know still uh, pretty much at the at the top of the pops, um, as you would call them, you know, when it comes to the uh, cadre of students that they, uh, they, they produce and, and groom. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's fascinating that you had that uh, uh, detour in, in to Oxford um, and then uh, came over to the U.S. So uh, incredibly uh, rich journey, I would say, you know, translational uh, science, uh, epidemiology, and then electrophysiology. It's, it's a great combination. So you, you've been in Boston now for, for several years. Um, what about, what about Boston, uh, enthralls you, keeps enthralling you? It's, it's my favorite city, you know, by the way. Uh, thank you. I uh, know. So I've been in Boston now for, I think almost 24 years. I came to the U S in 1996. Um, and you know, it's a phenomenal city. I mean, this is, um, honestly home it's it's the only place i've lived in uh in the u.s since coming here um you know all my friends and colleagues and family all are in and around boston um and the city itself is is phenomenal i mean it's uh, got so much of depth and breadth in the academic end of things that continues to enthrall me um uh, especially on the in the medicine perspective but you know even as a city it's so culturally diverse and um, you know the sports teams out here are fantastic and we're all uh, reb, uh, you know uh, big fans of all the sports teams out here uh, so there's a lot that you know has kept me here um, and then obviously uh, you know Mass General Hospital is such a phenomenal place to work in um, and whenever I've you know thought of saying okay maybe I should look around you know it's it's tough to find a place that 
uh, compares as well with, uh, you know, Boston and as well with Mass General Hospital. Yes, um, you know, I, I don't, I don't blame you when you um, recite words like uh, Boston and Massachusetts General Hospital. Uh, you know, de definitely, clearly one of the best cities in the world, and clearly, uh, you know, arguably the best in academic institution to work in. Um, so about about um, so t tell me a little bit more about um, you know your academic life. Uh, how has how hard or how easy um, has it been for you to balance? A career as a clinician, uh, and then a career as a, a clinician scientist. Because you know, I know you fulfill both of those roles uh, extremely well. And for someone uh, like myself who is in the early career phase, you know, like we were talking off the line, I'll be finishing three years this summer. Um, and you know, most of our audience uh, and our listenership is fellows in training or early career uh, cardiologists, or you know. Perhaps even I, I hope perhaps mid career. I mean the, the people like myself look up to you and, and your career. Uh, just uh, tell us more about how you how you've balanced that act um, for yourself. Sure, uh, absolutely. So you know I'm going to take a step back um, and probably elaborate why I made certain decisions along the way, <clears throat> and the reason for that is because I think. Um, for somebody to be able to, um, if I may call myself successful in research, um, I think it's really important that you have to be passionate about it. Um, and to be passionate about it, I think it's really important that you have to be true to yourself uh, regarding why you're doing it, um, what is driving you, um, and then most importantly, doing it in the arena that you feel you know, most engaged in. Um, <clears throat> so I'm going to take a step back and tell you that when I first um, got into Oxford, uh, my, my, my project was a basic science project. Um, and within three months itself, I quickly realized that, you know, I did not have the aptitude uh, for basic science, uh, primarily because I was not patient and I was just not overtly excited about doing patch clamping in single cardiac myocytes. Uh, so I converted my PhD into a translational one that actually involved clinical research. When I then moved to the Framingham Heart Study and did cardiovascular epidemiology, I think I learned a whole lot uh, about you know, clinical trials and epidemiology um, that when I finished my EP fellowship, I actually wrote my first K23 grant, which is an NIH grant for doing some cardiovascular epidemiology work, uh, looking at sudden death and looking at electrophysiological markers for sudden death and the like. You know, I got my K23 results back and I uh, was very high up there and was almost guaranteed that it was a successful application. Um, but I, I, I sat back and, you know, spent some time in introspection and felt that, you know, it didn't wake me up in the morning. Um, and I really wanted to do something that woke me up every morning that I was completely engaged with. So I actually turned down my K23 and decided that I wanted to do clinical research and clinical trials. Um, I wanted to do something that was 
I'm so intrinsically connected with my day-to-day clinical care um, that I could have an immediate impact. Um, so I actually spent the next two years reinventing myself as a clinical trialist, um, where I started small clinical research projects uh, at MGH, but at the same time started getting engaged in clinical trials at a national level. Um, And I found that that gave me immense joy. And since I was able to overlap my clinical interests with my clinical research and with my patients, there came a time that I couldn't truly distinguish sometimes, you know, uh, between research and clinical work, because it was all intermingled in such a seamless way that I felt fulfilled on both ends. So, so, and I know this is a long-winded answer to your question about balancing uh, academic life with, with uh, the clinical end of things. Um, and I think finding a strategy where you feel fulfilled uh, and you're happy about doing both clinical work as well as research work and a way that they seamlessly integrate, uh, I think allowed me to find that balance quite easily. Um, obviously, it requires a fair amount of work. Um, it requires a fair amount of time educating yourself. Uh, but if you find uh, an area that interests you and something you're passionate about, I think it can happen quite well. Um, yes. No, I, I actually wanted to thank you for the long answer that you give because uh, there are so many learning points in that answer. Um, you know, most most important take home from for me uh, was to just ha- to just be true to yourself. Um, a lot of us uh, get into you know, for example, you know, just uh, just to garner uh, some lessons for myself as well as for the audience. Uh, when I got into research, it was a necessity because when I came into the U.S., uh, the purpose of coming was to be able to get into a cardiology fellowship. That's why I came here. Um, and I thought I would be able to do that, but I did not know that I would have to repeat my medicine residency. So when I was, when I was repeating my residency, um, you know, I I would often get that, uh, feedback that, you know, forget about cardiology. It's extremely competitive. Uh, you have to be embellished with, uh, with research. Uh, if you have to even be considered competitive, the fact that you're a foreign graduate and on a visa. So for me, it was a necessity, but I actually, and you know, so early on when I got into um, research, it was more about getting published um, and making sure that I had a competitive uh, resume for a fellowship application. And then I think some point in some point during fellowship, it changed. And I, you know, I had that, I had that moment where, you know, I, I said, you know, it's, now that you know the fellowship is secure, I really should focus on uh, taking up projects which you know interest me, and like you said, which which wake you up excited in the morning, uh, because you think you're going to, you're going to derive uh, new knowledge, uh, which would change or enhance patient care or outcome in some way, shape, or form. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, one of the first things I tell fellowship uh, uh, candidates when they're coming to interview, uh, or even actually resident candidates when they're trying to find out about fellowship, I tell them you may have come in here with a story, uh, 
it's okay to change your story. You do not have to be wedded to a story that you developed in medical school or during a residency, because over time, your interests change. Um, and you may not be as passionate about something or something may not be as glamorous or interesting as you thought it would be. Uh, and it's okay to change your story, uh, but it's so important to be true to yourself um, because that's the only way you're at peace with yourself. Otherwise, you're living a life for other people. Or, you know, I always uh, try to define um, or distinguish between satisfaction and success. Um, and I think success is oftentimes uh, how other people measure our lives, and satisfaction is oftentimes how we measure the work we're doing. And I think it's so important to kind of be sure you're not mistaking one for the other. Uh, and the only way to do that is being honest to yourself. Yes, you know, this is such great wisdom, right? Uh, and I, I love it the way you've put it. Um, and I think it's, it's, uh, it's an extremely important message is to uh, have the clarity in your mind to be able to distinguish um, success from satisfaction. Because I think what will truly give you joy and peace uh, and happiness um, is a satisfaction. Uh, and, you know, um, I think, uh, you know, success is, um, I, to me, at least that's how I've learned about it. And I've perceived it as, you know, I've dealt with both failures and successes, um, is I think to, um, have a barometer within yourself where you are at a, at, at a place, um, called equanimity within yourself. And you are just a silent observer of whatever's happening to you or in your life. Um, and you know, you're constantly being a student of, of the circumstances that life's throwing at you. And, you know, the only, um, uh, I mean, I use the word student because, um, you know, the, the only goal, uh, then is to be able to come out as a, as a better person, as a better physician, as a better individual, as a better family man, or as a better friend. Uh, so I, you know, thank you for taking the time to actually define those words for our audience, you know, success and satisfaction. And, you know, I, I couldn't agree more, uh, that change is the only constant and I, you know, you, you, I think one keeps changing as a person, one, uh, one's priorities keep changing, um, as you know, one, um, goes, goes through life and, uh, you know, there's a lot of, uh, learning from what you said. So, you know, thank you for. Uh, your honesty and your candor and and sharing uh, your insights insights with us um, so uh, you know with that I, th I think we should um, we should talk about uh, the late breaking trial that you presented uh, you know talking about research uh, this past year in November which was which was published in JAMA uh, it was uh, on on a population of patients which is evolving and we keep learning more and more about them uh, there is actually a designated subspecialty within cardiology now, the cardio-oncology subspecialty. So, you know, I, I'm sure people want to hear more from you than from me on this topic. So I'll, I'll let you, uh, you know, take the center stage here. Sure. No, absolutely. So one of the things I, I didn't, uh, you know, elaborate on before um, is that, you know, after I started uh, the, uh, the, the multidisciplinary program, that I did in patients with heart failure and implanted devices, uh, which is called the REACT program. So it was the Resynchronization and Advanced Cardiac Therapeutics program. 
Um, this was a, a multidisciplinary program, which was the first of its kind uh, in 2005, 2006, that actually brought together heart failure, electrophysiologists, imaging specialists, and oftentimes even cardiac surgeons. Uh, and it was a one-stop shop and continues to be a one-stop shop where patients are seen um, uh, with all of all the three subspecialties together at the same time, uh, really providing an integrated opinion uh, about you know care strategies. Um, so when when that came to be, uh, it got a lot of national attention, obviously because it was the first integrated program, um, and it proliferated into several clinical trials. Uh, and I can tell you, at one point in time. I was probably running almost, you know, my group was running, let's put it this way, about 20 to 24 clinical trials at any given time over the period of the last 10 to 15 years. Um, and all these clinical trials were either in enhancing uh, selection strategies uh, or enhancing implantation uh, and device implantation strategies for patients with heart failure or in follow-up strategies to see uh, you know, what you can do better through integrated care and other strategies to enhance outcomes of these patients. So, you know, one of the things we noticed while we were, um, you know, taking care of these patients with heart failure, um, that there was this population of patients who had chemotherapy-induced cardiomyopathy. Uh, so patients who had actually survived uh, cancer and now had heart failure, and were kind of looked upon as patients that, uh, you know, really had gone through a double whammy and were unlikely to benefit from any other interventional strategy. So this was back in 2010 or so, uh, one of my residents, uh, Olu Adjijola, uh, who put together a series of four or five patients, uh, this is retrospective, four or five patients with chemotherapy-induced cardiomyopathy who had um, wide QRSs, so they had an intraventricular conduction defect, so that means their hearts had mechanical dysynchrony, uh, and we offered cardiac resynchronization therapy to these uh, four women, um, and it turned out that they did actually pretty well. Um, their reverse model, that means their ejection fraction significantly improved, uh, they had reduced hospitalizations, and their clinical course actually seemed to move in the right direction. Um, with that success, we felt that maybe there is a larger subset of these patients out there in the real world uh, being followed potentially by cancer surveillance programs um, that may not be getting the benefit of resynchronization therapy uh, and just have protracted heart failure and eventually die from heart failure. So with that as the backdrop, um, I, along with uh, Dr. Arthur Moss, um, Arthur Moss, as you know, has passed away, uh, was legendary uh, in device trials. Uh, this was the first trial that he allowed somebody else uh, to become, he was my mentor, uh, to become the uh, principal national investigator. Uh, it's a study called the Made It Chic Study. So uh, Made It Studies, everybody knows the Chic Study is chemotherapy-induced cardiomyopathy. So this was uh, a multi-center study set up with 12 cardio-oncology programs across the country uh, looking for these patients with cardiomyopathy and uh, conduction defects 
um, and then trying to see if uh, resynchronization therapy can help them. So over the course of, I think, two and a half, three years, we recruited about 32 patients uh, with this, these phenotypes uh, and, and uh, gave them cardiac resynchronization therapy. Um, and and the, uh, you know, the short answer was that these patients did really well. Uh, almost all of these patients had significant reverse remodeling of their hearts. Uh, none of them had heart failure hospitalizations uh, over a six-month period. So obviously, it was a short follow-up period. Um, and this was recently published in JAMA uh, in November uh, of 2019 uh, and was presented as a late breaker at the Heart Rhythm Society uh, in May of 2019. Uh, so again, I think it is the first device therapy trial uh, in this subset of patients, of cardio-oncology patients. Uh, so I think it got some notoriety because of that. Uh, but I'm delighted to say that, you know, uh, patients who survive cancer and develop heart failure uh, at least have some therapeutic strategies that can still make them feel better again. Yeah, no, uh, just incredible work. Uh, congratulations for, um, y- you know, conducting the study and uh, presenting the data and publishing them uh, in JAMA. Do you uh, foresee, uh, or I mean, I should ask if there is a, uh, you know, an ongoing longitudinal follow-up, I, I would assume there would be for these patients. And are 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 you enrolling, um, or is are you enrolling more patients, or you think this has now become a part of your practice, or at least part of the cardio oncology program at the uh, at the MGH? So, so you know, um, in all fairness, I am not a cardio oncologist, uh, but having said that, you know, I think the cardio oncology community, which is you know exponentially growing. Um, not just in numbers, but also in influence, um, I think um, are seriously looking into this. Um, They're also developing a lot of registries for device therapy uh, in this subset of patients. And device therapy doesn't necessarily have to be cardiac resynchronization therapy, uh, but could even include pacemakers and ICDs and the like. Uh, So yes, I think uh, it makes a lot of sense uh, to have more longitudinal long-term follow-up uh, in these patients, uh, and I'm sure there are studies undergoing uh, that are underway. Uh, but we, as a center, um, have not pushed it forward uh, at this point in time because of other competing interests. All right. So you know, with that, I, I think we should um, uh, talk about another aspect of this episode. You know, which I think is is going to be very important uh, as well. Um, as as has been, you know, your uh, career and and your journey. Um, but, you know, I think one more important aspect of you is, uh, that you are now, um, a pandemic survivor. You've, you've survived COVID-19, um, and you've had quite the battle, uh, thanks to your wife for sharing your inspirational journey with all of us, um, uh, on, on Twitter. Uh, and, you know, for, for the listeners who have not read, uh, the, the feed, I would highly encourage to, to read. Uh, that, that Twitter feed, because, um, you know, y- you would learn a lot about uh, the disease process and the struggles for, uh, you know, patients, caregivers and, and ho- you know, hospitals, healthcare systems and just all of us, because, uh, you know, we're all in this together, obviously. Um, so tell, tell us. Uh, so, you know, first of all, uh, I'm grateful that you're here and uh, and you've you've agreed to share um, and incredibly personal uh, journey and experience with with our audience and with our listeners so i 
deeply appreciate that and I sincerely thank you for that. And I'm so glad that you are, uh, uh, you are on your way to recovery, but, you know, just walk us through, um, you know, what led you to getting tested and what, what ensued, uh, from there on end. Sure. Sure. No, absolutely. Um, you know, sometimes I, I think my claim to fame is probably this COVID-19 infection uh, more than anything else that I've done. And I, I jokingly tell my wife that I'm now called the COVID cardiologist. Um, so to give you a bit of the backdrop, so I was probably amongst the first few patients um, to be infected with COVID at Mass General Hospital for certain, uh, certainly not the first, but amongst the first few, I would say. Um, so I, I don't know how I got the infection. Um, I was uh, traveling the week prior. It was domestic travel. I was speaking at the Heart Rhythm Society Industry Symposium. Um, and then subsequently, I, I spent a day in the lab uh, doing an AF ablation and implanting a couple of devices and spent the next day in clinic seeing patients. Uh, and when I went home, I felt a little poorly. Uh, and in the next morning, that's now March 11th. So that, this all goes back almost 33, 34 days. Uh, March 11th is when I actually woke up with a severe fever um, and a high fever and, and uh, body ache and myalgias. Um, I, at that point in time, almost instantly, um, I kind of knew this was different. Um, I knew that it was not the flu. I was not congested, did not have any sinus congestion or upper respiratory tract infection or anything like that. Um, and, and although the COVID, uh, you know, fear was around, there were still no, you know, institutional laws or, or strategies, sorry, not, not, not laws. There were no directives that we were not to travel and people were not that worked up about it. Um, but having said that, uh, you know, uh, so when I woke up, I felt ill. Um, I called the administration of the hospital uh, and then um, uh, asked them to allow me to get tested because of my contact contact with patients. And then I was tested in 48 hours, uh, which turned out to be a positive test. Um, and uh, so I was quarantined and my wife was also right from the day one. My wife is an oncologist. Um, at Mass General, and she also was self-quarantined right from day one of my developing the fever because there was this, you know, COVID conversation at least that was going on at that point in time. Um, so I, I stayed at home, uh, thought I was getting better. The fevers were kind of getting better, but somewhere around, I think, March 19th or so, um, I started getting a headache um, and developing a cough and was a little short of breath. So despite the fact that I felt things were under control, uh, it suddenly took a turn for the worse. So this is a week into when you had the fever, right? Correct. Correct. So uh, almost eight days now, I think. And it was at that point in time uh, that Nupur, my, my wife, um, uh, you know, said that it's time to go to the hospital. Uh, so she, uh, you know, uh, could not take me down the stairs. So we had, live in a townhouse. Uh, and uh, so it I would have to go down three flights of stairs and it was not possible. Um, and uh, she landed up calling 911. And uh, they took me uh, to MGH, um, which is actually just across the road from where we live. Um, and I was rushed to the ER. 
uh, in the ER, they did a chest X-ray, uh, which I had, uh, I would say, uh, an, op an opportunity to look at, uh, and it was a complete whiteout. So both the lungs were significantly infiltrated <clears throat> with the bilateral pneumonia. Um, I was breathing all right. I was not too short of breath. My oxygen saturations were somewhere in the 94, 95 range. Um, but they were concerned enough, and it was early enough in the pandemic that folks didn't really know exactly, you know, what the clinical course would be. Um, so uh, my caregivers in the ER then landed up getting a CAT scan, uh, which showed that the pneumonias were probably even worse. Um, and they felt that there was very little residual lung tissue that was working normally. Um, and that it may not be a bad idea for me to go to the intensive care uh, because <clears throat> there was a high likelihood that I might get need a ventilator. And, and probably at that point in time, there was a lower threshold for folks to get a ventilator too. Um, so landed up in the ICU where I stayed overnight. Uh, fortunately, my oxygen saturations uh, hovered in a normal range. Uh, that they felt uh, that maybe I can be managed conservatively. Um, and so I was shifted to the uh, regular COVID floor. Um, obviously, in the ICU, I was consented for my code status, uh, uh, for intubation, uh, for invasive hemodynamic lines, should I need them. Um, so I was kind of prepared, uh, obviously, uh, for the worst, uh, but it was... Uh, nice to know that my SATs didn't drop um, and then I could be shifted to the regular floor. I must say um, <clears throat> that I was, when I was in the ER, I was asked almost on a, you know, half hourly basis uh, whether I was tired and whether I wanted to get intubated. And that was a little disconcerting, certainly for me at that point in time. Um, but landed up on the COVID floor. Um, and then I stayed there for another eight days because my fever uh, did not get better until the last day before I got discharged uh, from the hospital. So, so a total course of almost 21 to 22 days um, with, with fever. Um, I, I lost a significant amount of weight, so almost about 14 pounds, 14 to 16 pounds uh, at the end of it, and probably you know just from the fever ravaging the body. Um, but one of the other disconcerting things, obviously, along the way was um, my inflammatory markers, that is, you know, the CRP, the ESR, and, and I think they were also measuring LDH uh, and significant lymphopenia, uh, kept getting worse uh, during my early days uh, on the COVID floor. Um, and each of these markers, uh, you know, obviously are suggestive of poor prognosis. So putting it all together, uh, it was, you know, I was amongst the fortunate few not to get ventilated uh, and get better. Uh, but nevertheless, there were uh, parts of this journey uh, that I think were educational, certainly, but along the way, also quite disconcerting. Um, how was it to deal with um, the diagnosis with the degree of illness, its severity uh, on an emotional level, both for you and for your family? Uh, sure. Um, you know, uh, I think I, I may have been emotionally labile at times, um, uh, <laughs> but um, I think 
it is an extremely isolating illness uh, because your family is not allowed to be in touch with you. Um, you are, uh, you know, cordoned off. Uh, but your lifeline, at least my lifeline, was the nursing staff at Mass General. Um, and, uh, you know, your FaceTime is a beautiful thing. So you can still be in connection with your family, uh, but you're not allowed to, you know, see them personally at any point in time. So, you know, I think it can be very isolating. Um, I, I Certainly, uh, I think it was worse for my family. Um, I was fairly uptunded uh, during several parts of this clinical course. Uh, but, you know, they were in real time kind of experiencing this uh, and were obviously worried that, you know, I was going to go down uh, a path that uh, nobody wanted me to go down. Uh, were you given um, any of the medications uh, that are, uh, you know, even at this point considered investigational? You know, for example, hydroxychloroquine, azithromycin. Um, what about what about uh, managing fever? Like, were you given any antibiotics? I know there is a relative contraindication for use of ibuprofen. Yeah, no, that's spot on. So, you know, I think um, uh, one of the things my wife was trying to avoid giving me was ibuprofen at home. Uh, and that, you know, is actually the only thing that brings my temperature down. So it was a bit of a battle between the fever uh, and not taking enough antipyretics that I think really kind of made me feel unwell too. And, and nobody really had the right answers. And we were working off this, you know, literature that was constantly changing, coming in. Uh, so that was a bit of a challenge. Uh, and I believe people are more relaxed now about giving uh, ibuprofen. But at that point in time, it was certainly something that, you know, we were underdosing me with. And uh, as a result of which my fevers kind of consisted and persisted for a while. Uh, but nevertheless, um, you know, I, I think when I got to the hospital, even there, uh, there was some element of reticence uh, to use um, uh, ibuprofen. And, and only when I had a really high temperature was I given naproxen or something to that effect. Um, yes, I did get hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin, uh, which uh, was, and I think may still be, I'm not sure, a part of the MGH protocol. Um, and I think the MGH protocol at that point in time was working off again. Um, the early liter literature that you know, suggested that it could have benefit. Uh, I think we've learned now along the way that there are several studies that have indicated otherwise that it may not benefit patients at all. And in fact, there are some studies even suggesting that there could be some cardiovascular side effects from it. Um, but I, I, I got it. I, I tolerated it well. Uh, and I also, at the same time, uh, was enrolled in the Remdesivir trial, um, which is the same drug or antiviral drug that was used for Ebola. Um, and, you know, it's a double-blind randomized control trial. So I have no idea uh, which arm I was in. Uh, but I, that was, again, something that I got additionally along the way. Uh, it's, it's tough to say if any of these helped. Um, or whether the disease just took its natural course. Uh, but I'm hoping that the results of some of these studies will give us some direction. Um, you know, thanks again for sharing um, your experience. It's, um, it's frightening. It's terrifying. It's also enlightening. But it just um, sort of re recapitulates the, the self-realization that, you know, it, it just were 
we're so vulnerable and we're so we're also just nobodies you know we we could just uh, totally be succumbed to any illness and um you know at that point in time it just uh, brings you so so much closer to um uh, you know truth and 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 life and reality and and you know to to your point of pursuing your passion i mean i think you should pursue your passions relentlessly um you know be humble and kind to everyone um cuz you know you're you're and hope and and hope that in that journey you're you're going to impact others in in ways that they may be thankful for um but just you know just living a truthful life and a life full of purpose and passion is is something which i i think to me you know learning from your experiencing that that's that, that's the most drive home point for me uh, i think you're spot on ankur um you know life is very fragile um uh you know one minute you're here and one minute you're not um I, and i think it's so important that we have to be real uh we have to know you know what we're living for and i i think one of the most important things is you know our family um and then our friends and i think um uh, really giving importance to our day-to-day -day relationships um and and considering every opportunity uh to communicate uh as a privilege because who knows that you may not have that privilege you know uh in a, a the next minute um so i think it certainly put life in perspective for me um and 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 i think it helps me evaluate you know what the next things i would like to um you know spend my time doing uh but i certainly you know i think looking after patients uh repaying my debt by getting better and getting back on the front lines for the covid fight is something i i really am looking forward to um as i've as i've said before you know i almost feel like a draft dodger i i fell ill at a time when i was needed uh but hopefully you know I, i'll be able to get back and and help out again well you know we wish you um all the best and we wish you uh, a complete recovery and thank you for your time and your generosity and your courage and your transparency to share your journey with us and um I look forward to staying in touch and you know constantly learning from you and your your work uh, and your service to patients thanks again great thank you ankur and thank you for having me on take care Dear cardiologists, we want to make this podcast about you and for you. So please email us your critical thoughts, comments and questions at podcast at radcliffe-group.com and visit uscjournal.com for more information. You can also follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook and Instagram at Radcliffe Cardiology for daily updates. Join thousands of cardiologists and become a Radcliffian by registering to radcliffecardiology.com. You will receive regular newsletters and gain access to hundreds of expert interviews, educational webinars, clinical cases, and peer-reviewed articles from our six medical review journals on general cardiology, interventional cardiology, arrhythmia and electrophysiology, cardiac failure, and vascular and endovascular surgery. Thank you.